I want to welcome you back to God-Sized Living. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've been dealing with a, a pretty broad topic. The topic is persecution. And last week, I really wanted to send in front of you this, this question of persecution in America. Uh, all of us can pretty quickly say, yes, over there. And we can point to Islamic countries. We can point to uh, com- communistically held countries. And we, we see persecution. We know it's happening. Um, and hopefully by now you've got that statistic down. There's, there's actually a lot of death that goes on annually in the name of Jesus Christ. We've been trying to make a distinction between cultural displacement and persecution. The two can become pretty intertwined. Uh, once you have a culture that has displaced the Christian narrative with a, another narrative, uh, you, you really have set the stage for persecution. Uh, I think about that time when Stalin and Lenin enter into Russia, and Russia has all of these churches and Christians, and Christianity is quickly, quickly uh, displaced with communistic philosophy and, and really theology, and what happens is a lot of death. So we're, we're making that distinction, and at the same time, we're, we're recognizing that uh, the question being asked is, Is it present today in America? Well, certainly all of us would say cultural displacement has already taken place. It's as a part of our reality today. I used uh, last week an example of a a gentleman who was asked to speak at his high school and uh, was pretty much chastised in social media for delivering what he believed was just a, a normal message about marriage and yet he he was chastised for actually producing what was called uh, hate hate speech by a number of people. So I think we know it. Yeah, cultural displacement has taken place. But is there actual persecution going on? I share with you some, some words from a writer named Megan Bailey who identifies a number of realms in which she says, yeah, I think there is. I think there is persecution going on. Uh, we see it in the political realm, in the legal realm. We see it uh, in academia today. Um, we see it in the medical realm, yeah, and particularly, oh my goodness, the realm of media, as well as the job market. So um, one of the things then that, that grows out of this is what I'm going to call the central question. And I, I call it the why of persecution. What's the purpose of it? Why would God allow persecution to take place? This is kind of interesting. Open Doors, I've mentioned them a couple of times, that organization that monitors persecution around the globe, actually lists four specific reasons that they believe persecution takes place globally. So I'm going to say that a little bit differently. They identify what they would call the four specific purposes of persecution. Here they are. So number one, what's the purpose of persecution? Uh, The purpose for authoritarianism authoritarian governments around the globe is to what? To limit the power of Christianity as an ideology, to challenge the loyalty to the ruler. So I put this in my own words. Uh, Why persecute? Well, the purpose of it is to control. Control for the purpose of maintaining political power. Here, by the way, North Korean politics is cited as an example. Uh, secondly, Open Door says the second purpose of persecution is to squelch any narrative outside of the dominant cultural one. Again, said simply, this is a, a matter of control. 
cultures will turn to persecution to protect their dominant narrative, will punish those who are outside of the central narrative of culture. I think we've heard over the last couple of years the, the words cancel culture. If you are not in agreement with the central narrative of our culture today, we will cancel you. We will squelch you out. Thirdly, why, why persecution? Well, the third purpose is to eradicate Christian presence, eradicate it, and, and eradicate the biblical narrative. Of course, we know that in some nations, this reality is intense. Uh, many people are losing their lives as they cling to the biblical story. And then number four, finally, um, sometimes the purpose of persecution is to maintain a dominant single religion. Uh, my observation is this is obvious in some places. Uh, Pakistan, where Sharia law calls for putting to death infidels, that would question in any way the writings of Allah. It's a lot less evident in America, where studio executives in Hollywood are at work engineering production policies that assure the expression of a single American religion, namely the religion of tolerance. So pull up to the 10,000 foot level with me. I think there's a lot of validity in the observations being made by open doors regarding the purpose of persecution. But I also think there's something missing. Allow me to do it this way. I'm going to ask a critical question. Here it is. I understand co cognitively these four purpose statements open door makes, but why does God allow? And I'm going to go further than that. Sometimes actually cause persecution. Hmm? Yep. You heard me right. What is his purpose? So this is, in my mind, the question that is presented by the 8th chapter of Daniel. Remember with me in the 8th chapter, Daniel's sharing with us a dream, an ecstasy that God's given him. And in the dream, God shows him a progression of empires that are yet to come. Empires in which God's people will experience both discrimination and persecution. Included are Babylon, Persia, Greece, and in particular, Rome. Now, when it comes to Greece, there's one ruler in particular, who in this dream, in this ecstasy, is lifted off the page and identified as a persecutor of Christians. He's not the only emperor that will persecute Christianity. I know, I never will. But he is one whose persecution rises to a level that in Daniel's dream, God points him out. I'm talking, of course, about Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Now, listen to this. In Daniel's dream, Antiochus is described as a little horn that grows into an exceedingly large horn, horns in this case representing political powers. As he grows, what does he do? He begins to persecute those who hold faith in the Messiah, Jesus, even to the point of challenging God himself. I want you to just listen to these words and see if you can pick out the language of persecution here. This is Daniel chapter 8, beginning verse 9 to 11. Lord, would you give us your wisdom as we read these verses? Verse 9, out of one of them came a little horn, there's Antiochus, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offerings was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. End of verse 11. Can you hear 
persecution there? Can you, can you pick it out in the language? Listen to this again. The stars it threw to the ground and it trampled them. Of course, stars are here symbols for those who have come to faith in Messiah, Jesus. Trampled them. Or how about this? Quote, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. End quote. Talk about persecution. Antiochus would actually grind to a stop the sacrificial system of Israel, which is intended to do what? Point people to faith in Jesus Christ. So historically, who, who is this Antiochus IV Epiphanes? Remember with me, we're about 215 BC, about 212 years prior to the birth of Jesus, about 64 years away from the rule of Nero. Now, at this time in history, Greece has been divided into four regions, each with its own set of rulers. In the case of Antiochus, he's part of the Seleucid region located in Mesopotamia. So when Antiochus came to power, uh, we know historically it was under questionable circumstances. Here's what's clear. The fact that he did not have claim as an heir to the throne. That, that claim actually belonged to Demetrius, Seleucus' son. But that didn't stop Antiochus from proclaiming himself king and adopting the name. Remember at birth, his name was what? Mithridates. But as he became emperor, he claimed the name Antiochus Epiphanes, which here's what it means translated. Anyone know? Antiochus Epiphanes. Out of Greek, it means this. I am God manifest. Just think about that. Here, here's this Greek usurper of a throne who stands in front of the world and says, in effect, do you know who I am? I am God. You bow down and can kiss my feet. Now, given all this, you can, you can immediately say, see that God's people were going to be a problem for Antiochus. You know why? Because there's only one God, and Antiochus is not you, will not bow down. So what does Antiochus do? He begins to persecute and kill God's people. Here's how about it, God. Antiochus shut down worship and the sacrificial system of the temple. He shut it down. He ordered God's people out. Not only that, but he, he entered into the temple, put up a statue of a Greek God. And on top of that, smeared pig's blood. Remember, pigs unclean to Jews? He smeared pig's blood on the altar and dared God's people to do anything about it. So what they knew is that Antiochus had com committed blasphemy. He's mocking God, he's mocking them, and he's killing them in every way possible. Talk about persecution. So the question is why? Why does God allow someone like Antiochus to come to power? Why, why does God allow a nation like America to experience the loss of its foundational narrative, the Christian narrative, that at one time underlay every aspect of American culture, law, and life. Why, Why God? Said simply, what good can come out of it? Persecution. What is its spiritual purpose? Here, here's my observation. When we look at history, it's more than evident that God not only allows, but sometimes causes persecution to be a part of his people's lives. In the book Daniel, God is showing Daniel through his dream what he's allowing to come, inclusive of Antiochus. So what's its purpose? Think about this with me. When do we grow more in our faith? During good, complementary times? When culture is favorable towards the Christian meta-narrative? Or do we grow more when culture confronts and even persecutes those who live inside the biblical story? Those whose lives are about God's kingdom. So the answer comes pretty quickly, doesn't it? We tend to grow more. Not, not when things are easy, not when they're good, not when they're complementary, but we grow most under fire. 
The fires of persecution have a purpose. They tend to do three things. They cleanse. That is, they push us back into God's word, not the word of the world, and not even the word of the church, but of his word. And once in his word, we often see how far away we've gotten from it. Two, the fires of persecution separate. They separate substance from superficiality, the wheat from the chaff. They reveal who the church is versus those who simply go to church. And yes, there's a difference. Number three, they, they purpose. They, they give us purpose. I think this is the greatest impact of persecution. The fires of persecution return the church back to its missional purpose. They remind us that it's easy as individuals and as Christian congregations to get so caught up majoring in minors that we forget the only reason that we're on this earth is to join God in his mission to bring those who don't know him into a faith relationship with him. So let me ask you this. Persecution, is it something bad? Well, yeah, I think it is. It's bad. Is it something to be avoided at all costs? I'm not sure. I'd like to avoid it. Or, or is it something God uses? In last week's podcast, I set out what I called the, the three P's of persecution. I told you we're going to look at the cause of persecution, i.e. who perpetrates it, first P, the purpose of persecution, and then finally the power of persecution. Today, we've really spent our time around purpose. Next week, I want to finish out this topic by talking about the power of persecution. But before we leave today, I want to pose a couple of questions for you to think about this week. And by the way, yes, these questions are meant to provoke. Here they are. Question number one. There's little argument that, but that we as Christians living in the West have entered into a period of cultural displacement, discrimination, and even persecution. Here's the question. In what ways do you see God's hand in this? Is God simply allowing this increase of hatred or is he actively causing some of what we're experiencing? Please, please remember as you answer the question that God has often throughout history acted through evil rulers for the sake of his church. Question number two, how are you experiencing discrimination or maybe even persecution in your own life? And I'm going to add to that. How do you see it increasing as our culture moves further away from its foundations? And then last question, is persecution, this is a tough one, it's a tough one for me, is persecution something that we should be praying against, or is it something we should be praying for? Why do you answer the way that you just did? Well, that's all for this week. Again, I'm going to ask that you pray for me. I'll be praying for you and your family. I do really do appreciate your prayers. Uh, we'll pick up again with the power of persecution next week, and until then, have a God-sized week. <music>